Hey there. Welcome to Coffee with the Docs. We are a holistic lifestyle podcast where we give integrative solutions and bring brilliant experts to help you thrive, mind, body, and spirit. We are doctors Nicole Huffman and Abby Kramer, and we're so happy you're here. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're super excited that you're here to listen to this episode. So we have Dr. Mansoor Mohammed on, and he is one of the world's leading genomicists. And if you don't know what that is, it's okay, but it's basically somebody who's an expert in reading genes, but it's like reading the entire genome of our humans. So all of what their genes say and are encoded, and which is um, pretty amazing and really hard info sometimes to understand. And the best thing about Dr. Mansoor is that he really breaks it down easy so that anybody can understand it. He gives great analogies and metaphors so that you can take this complex information and turn it into information that really works for you and will only help improve your life and your health. I first heard him speak at a conference and I had kind of, um, I don't know, I think I was just not really into learning about genes a whole lot at the time. It seemed like such a new concept and everyone was just making all these supplements based off of it. And I listened to his lecture and immediately went over and bought his genomics test, like immediately. (laughs) I was like, oh, I need to do this. His lecture made so much sense to me. And what also is really nice about doing these tests is it's literally just saliva. So you're just spitting in a cup. It's not like some crazy blood draw or all these other complicated things. And so um, he's just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. So some of the things he hits on this in this interview, you guys, is why it's so important. Like, why do we need to know our genetics and the important role they play on our health? How you should know if you'd be a great candidate for a genetic profile? Um, what he goes into why general genetic tests, like you guys have heard of 23andMe and stuff like that, like they're actually not that informative and really don't take into account the whole picture. Um, and so he talks about like the difference between those general tests and his functional genomics. And we also delve into genetics and hormones, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I think that's one of the best parts is just really understanding how your hormones work. And I love that he's like, I can take one look at someone's hormonal pathways and I know exactly what their body's going to look like, like what issues they might be dealing with, if they're able to put on a lot of muscle, if they have a harder time losing body fat. I mean, it's so informative to see the ways that the pathways work. So if you guys are interested in doing your own, they're calling it uh, a female hormone panel, you guys, they're giving such an awesome special offer. They're going to provide a free 30-minute consultation with one of their in-house clinicians when you buy this female hormone panel. And our specific code for Coffee with the Docs is YT, both capitals, 220. And we'll have this in the show notes. So just, you know, you input our code when you're prompted for clinician code during checkout, and then you automatically get 
a separate link when your reports are ready that will allow you to schedule with someone to really explain to you what all of this stuff means for you and your health. It's a very empowering episode on a topic that can be really confusing. And really scary. I think sometimes people look at their genetics and they automatically think of all the diseases they're going to get or mm-hmm. something. And it's it's not that at all. It's very – he even goes into the BRCA gene, which I think is great. Because yeah. I know that that's a really scary thing for a lot of females and it doesn't have to be. Yep. Loved it. So enjoy. As always, let us know what you guys think. Please feel free to shoot us an email. Please go ahead and rate the podcast on iTunes. You guys, we love you. Thanks for being here. All right. Welcome, everyone, back to Coffee with the Docs. We are with a really special guest today who the first time I heard him lecture completely blew my mind and changed my whole thinking about genetics and how important they are in our health and well-being and learning things about our body. And I cannot wait for you guys to listen to his brilliance. So Dr. Mansoor, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And it's an honor to be part of this. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So we're actually just going to have you go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone. In that case, uh, Nicole, I'm not going to bore your audience. I'm a clinical genomicist. I cut my teeth. The first part of my career was in classical clinical genomics, i.e. the genomics of disease, where I studied the genomics of cancer at UCLA, and thereafter the genomics of developmental disorders at Baylor College of Medicine, so autism, childhood developmental challenges. And after spending many years doing that, i.e. that genomics of disease or genomics of dysfunction, I really started asking myself, why would I not want to put that same knowledge to simply the genomics of well-being on the other side? And so for the last several years, i.e. for the last 10 years, I've dedicated myself to using genomics and teaching genomics as a tool to clinicians from the side of wellness, from the side of keeping the patient healthy as opposed to waiting for them to be ill. I mean, in a nutshell, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mansoor, before we dive into everything, we ask we ask all of our guests a couple questions. And the first one, the first one's fun because you know we're coffee with the docs, and we really yep. love cozying up to you know different warm beverages while we're discussing yes. all of our favorite topics. So, what is your favorite uh, beverage of choice lately? Well, I must admit, I've discovered oat milk. I'm a bit, well, I am lactose intolerant, so I'm always searching for that creamy milk substitute. And I must, (laughs) you know, because, you know, well, soy milk has it, but I have some concerns there. We can get into that later. Uh, Certainly certainly too much of it for men, or even women for that matter. Almond milk doesn't quite do it for me, but I've discovered this oat milk (laughs) that is at once full and creamy, and, well, there we go. Don't get me started. So oat milk (laughs) is. Is oat milk new to Canada? You know, the silly part is it's not common at the Starbucks here. By the way, I'm not shot. In fact, I'm not at all recommending Starbucks. But (laughs) as far as the mainstream coffee shops, it's actually not very common. Obviously, from a homebrew perspective, that's what we use. But I discovered it at a Pete's Coffee in California. And ever since it said hello, it had me. It was just like, yes. (laughs) That's... It's we'll sound- do a whole separate episode on oat milk. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> where that's all we talk about. 
Well, there you go. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'm so glad you've started your new relationship with oat milk. <laughs> so do you like it in coffee or with espresso or how do you prefer it? You know, I'm I'm an old-fashioned, as I said, you know, I say to my wife, I'm a cheap date, easy to please. So just a good old-fashioned latte, extra hot, a touch of honey, and off I go. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Yep. That's amazing. Well, and so our other question, Dr. Mansoor, is what is your latest biohack? I, for, for reasons that I knew this even before I became a geneticist, uh, my mother can give you some fun stories, and thereafter my wife. I am a low BDNF producer, so my brain-derived neurotrophic factor, one of the most important neurotrophins and one of the most important things produced in the brain, responsible for all things neuroplasticity, responsible for all things circadian rhythm, I've got the version of the gene that makes BDNF. I have the lowest producing version of the gene, and hence my idiosyncrasies. But one of the things for individuals that have the lowest version or the, the, capacity, the, the low producing capacity for BDNF is they're particularly sensitive to circadian rhythm changes. So in other words, crossing time zones, shortening days, lengthening days. And so I've really been focusing myself especially going into the shorter days that we have here in Toronto, at modulating my light exposure to try to keep a, a more consistent circadian rhythm. So, for example, at nighttime, I would wear, uh, once it gets to be a decent hour, I wear blue light blocking glasses. Uh, I take some magnesium threonate in the morning, which is a stimulator for BDNF production. So, in short, my latest biohack is really trying to address this innate suboptimability that I have, which is the reduced ability to produce BDNF, which is so important in so many processes. And I must say, I do think it is working. That's awesome. I've been learning so much about light therapy Everyone's stuff talking as well. About it's it. definitely like this one expert, and I'll have to, I'll look at his name, put it in the show notes, but he talks about it a lot too. And he watches the sunrise and then watches the sunset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you do that too? <laughs> you know, I, I wish I had the opportunity to do that. <laughs> yeah. I, am, I am in Toronto, Canada. It's rather gloomy here. And unfortunately, sunset time usually finds me in a consult, in an office, behind closed doors. If I had the chance, I would do that. I can't stress enough, you know, uh, it's, it's Nicole. And my apologies, I missed, I missed who, who else is on the call? Abby. Abby. So, Nicole, Abby, I can't stress enough from a clinical perspective, you guys know this more than me, that a proper circadian rhythm, i.e. proper, and proper here means not just the quantity and the quality of sleep versus wake, but the consistency, and that's a really important point, the consistency with which one goes to bed and rises, it sets the stage for so many functions in the body. So many things in the body are based on circadian rhythms, hormonal systems, the way the brain recovers, the way the brain, the, the, the anti-inflammatory system of the body, the immune function of the body, they all work better when there are, when there is a setting for consistent and optimal circadian rhythm. So I can't stress enough, anything that we can do to, to normalize our circadian rhythms will probably be in our best interest. That's amazing. I know. And it, I think that's such an, and that's something that so many people can, you know, try and optimize is just the time they go to bed and wake up. So it's a really useful, it's a really good biohack. 
It is. It I is. Like and, it. and like you said, we've got a lot of control over it. Of course, modern life tends to be working against us in that regard. Artificial light, lots of gadgetry on the side of our beds and, and, and all of these things that, you know, we, we, we're doing things to ourselves intentionally, unintentionally that throw off our circadian rhythm. So like you said, it is something we doctors and clinicians should speak to their clients a bit more about the importance of this. Totally agreed. So could you provide a brief introduction on DNA testing, functional genomics, and the difference between a functional genomics test and then these other consumer tests that are kind of all over the place, like 23andMe, et cetera? Sure, sure. So, so what is DNA in the first place? So what is DNA such that we know what is DNA testing? DNA is the language of life. DNA is the encoding molecule that incorporates within it the operating manual of the human being. And like anything else, if you really want to understand how a thing works, such that you can access that thing, you can optimize its outcome, its performance, what what are you going to do? You're going to look towards the operating manual. So the operating manual of the human being is incorporated, it is encompassed within our DNA, i.e., Within the genome, the genome is the sum total of any the human genome, of which it's remarkably similar person to person, sex to sex. Uh, it's remarkable how much more similar we are to each other as, to, as opposed to difference to each other. The genome, which is the sum total of all of our genes and all of the DNA sequences, okay, the genome of a person can be likened to their operating manual. So what is DNA testing or what should DNA testing be about? DNA testing should be about one single purpose, understanding that operating manual better. Because the better we understand the operating manual for anything, including the human being, the better we are to appreciate how that thing, quote unquote, works, how might we optimize it? Are there things that are inherently suboptimal? How might we augment those suboptimabilities? That's the goal of DNA testing. And of course, in the extreme of it, it's also the goal of some DNA testing is to detect when there's really something wrong at a core level, a mutation, a disruptive disease-causing mutation to the operating manual. Of course, we can go there, but that's no longer what I do. Again, that's for those extreme cases, which brings us to now what is functional genomics. Functional genomics, after having said DNA is the encoding of the operating manual of the human being, number one. Number two, that the goal is that we want to access this operating manual. We want to read it. We want to read it intelligently so that we can understand the plethora of amazing functions that the human cells and therefore the human being has to accomplish at any given point in time, okay? Those genes are the paragraphs within this operating manual. The genes are the individual instructions telling the cells how to accomplish A, B, C. And what we do in DNA testing and in functional genomic testing is we are reading the operating manual, not just at the individual gene level, because ultimately, what do you want to learn? What do you want to know? You want to know how the thing is functioning. So functional genomics is less about single genes and more about the interpretation. You see, Nicole, Abby, in in a really good operating manual, the instruction or the paragraph on page three 
is colored, it is influenced, and it may influence paragraph 5 on page 12. And yet another paragraph will further extrapolate on these first two. The same applies to the human operating manual. So we cannot interpret single genes on their own and expect to really understand the human machinery, the human operating awesomeness that we see in each other, we need to read and interpret this genetic information in the collective, symbiotic, synergistic manner, which is how it was meant to be read. That is functional genomics. So functional genomics is less about the testing and more about the interpretation. That was perfect. I mean, that makes, it makes all the difference in the world when somebody brings in their just because I run your tests a lot with my patients and they bring in, they bring their tests in from like a 23 me. I don't mean to single them out. That's just yeah, the one that yeah, comes to mind. I think the most people do, but they're like, here are all of my single genes. And I'm like, uh, and then I look at like the beautiful pathways that come from your tests. And I'm like, this makes so much more sense when you're looking at everything together. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And now there is one more subtlety that does differentiate at the actual test level. And it is this. If you're reading an operating manual, which, like we said, that's what we're doing, and you're looking for changes, right? So you're looking to the manual. Again, we're all remarkably similar, but we're looking for those changes, these, thing called these things called variations. So we're looking for variations. We're looking for the change from one manual to the next, asking, does that change cause something that will be manifest? Will it affect some functionality in the body? Now, if you're going to do that to an operating manual, there are a few things that can happen to an operating manual that will result in changed outcomes. One of the things will be spelling errors or spelling changes to the operating manual. In the jargon of DNA, spelling changes are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. It is the equivalent, per the analogy that we're setting forth, it is the equivalent of spelling changes in the operating manual. And those are clearly going to be important. So if you've written a document and you do a spell check, your spell check will look for all of the places in the manual that either there's an erroneous spelling or an alternate spelling. This is what tests like 23andMe do, does, and we as well. It's important. However, it's, it's not going to be lost in anyone that spelling changes are not the only changes that affect the veracity of a manual or for a document, i.e. of the genome in this analogy. You see, there are changes such as where a whole paragraph is deleted from the operating manual. Now, of course, if a paragraph was deleted in a document, a spell check isn't going to do you any good because there's nothing to check. It's gone. It's deleted. And this phenomena happens in DNA, in, in our DNA as human beings. And this is not a rare phenomena. There are parts of our operating manual, parts of our genome that can actually be deleted. And unless your test is looking for all of these different, not just spelling errors, but deletions, uh, uh, replacements, reorganizations, you are not actually reading and checking the operating manual as efficiently as possible. So it need be said, not only is it the interpretation that we do that is different, but we are testing not just for SNPs, we're testing for all of the other ways in which the operating manual can be affected. Wow. I My mean. brain just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. 
So, Dr. Mansoor, how does someone know if they should run these tests? You know, I say, look, um, first, first, the negation of it. We are not doing these tests, particularly the ones that we advocate. The goal here is not about telling you you've got a, oh boy, we've determined you've got a 30% increased risk of heart disease, a 40% increased risk of dementia, and by the way, a 10% increased risk of ingrown toenails, and 5% increased risk of leaky wax syndrome, or what the heck ever else. <laughs> they, you know. okay? That's not the point here. The point is to determine, listen, the human body, every individual, every human being, our cells have to be able to do important jobs. We need to be able to metabolize and break down the nutrients that we eat. We need to be able to activate those nutrients from their from their original, i.e. whole food form. Many micronutrients come in what we call precursors, which you do need from your food, but then your cells have to do something to those precursors to turn them on, to activate them. Your cells need to be able to detoxify themselves, get rid of the toxins intentionally or unintentionally that you were exposed to, and so on and so forth. These functions are things that you want to know or you should want to know How good is my body? How good is my innate capacity standing up? Okay, And everyone's going to have the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so by learning about these things, what are you able to do and what is the goal here? The goal is not to stigmatize, oh my gosh, I've got this risk or that risk. Rather, the goal is to say, I'm a human being like anyone else. My body has to do all of the same jobs like anyone else has to do. But am I innately doing those jobs of metabolism, detoxification, making something, antioxidizing something? And so am I doing that at the genetic innate level? Am I, do, is my capacity efficient, optimal? And if the answer is no, what can I do about this? And many times when we know how efficient or not our cells are, we can take steps to improve that. That's the goal. So if, in other words, anyone who can say what I just said is important to them should do these tests. If they're not interested in that, if that's too much for them, then the answer would be you probably want to choose something else. (laughs) It's like, "Eh, I'm not interested in my detoxification, metabolism, energy, all of these things. But I think that's really important. It's like it really explains so many different processes in the body. It absolutely is. And that's, and, and, you know, in the hands of not only an intelligent person, but in the hands of skilled clinicians such as yourself, when instead of just this smorgasbord of, you know, 500 genes and, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? Rather, if a patient comes to you with the information that says, you know, my innate operating manual is clearly suboptimal at doing this job or doing that job. What can I do to augment, to improve this? Now we're really getting into the realm of wellness and health and longevity and optimal being. That's what we want to do. Absolutely. I feel like it's more empowering. It is absolutely empowering, or it should be, at least. Right. And what I like, too, is that you can look at these things and then decide how you want to, and we can get more into that later, like supplementation and everything, but it is. It's empowering. It gives you information. Indeed. So this MTHFR thing, this is part of what <laughs> <laughs> this is part of what was so mind blowing in your lecture to me when you were speaking about methylation and how we're over methylating and just, you know, everybody's like, oh, I have this one snip. And so here I'm taking methyl B every single day. So I would yes. love for you to just 
What is the, you know, what role does the MTHFR play in our health and well-being? So MTHFR, which is a remarkably important gene, it's one of those genes that you cannot survive, you wouldn't survive through embryonic development if this gene was deleted or if this gene was, you know, if, if this gene was overly affected. It's such an important gene. But it's, is it that the gene in and of itself is so ultimately important? It is important. But more important than that is that this gene contributes to a system, to a cellular mechanism, that mechanism is what is ultimately hugely important for optimal cell function in so many regards. And what is that cell function? That is something called methylation. So simply stated, methylation is the sum total mechanistic thing that your cells need to be able to do. Methylation contributes to the detox capacity of your cells, but there's something more important. Methylation can be viewed, i.e. the efficiency with which your cells perform this job, which we don't have to get into, this thing called methylation, the efficiency with which your cells do that, contributes hugely to your cells' ability to deal with inflammation. Now, Abby, Nicole, you both know, and any good clinician, it's we were learning more and more and more that chronic inflammation is probably, a, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you didn't know about a disease and you wanted to sound smart, you probably could now start to say, it's probably inflammation that's causing this. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of, you, could return, you can return to that as a baseline. So methylation as a cellular job is responsible for reducing inflammation. And that is so important. Now, methylation can be thought of, think of it this way, Think of a factory line, in other words, a conveyor belt within a factory, and that conveyor belt is moving along. And there is a product, there's a thing that starts at the first of the conveyor belt, and as it's moving along the conveyor belt, there are five robotic arms sequentially placed that at each station of the robotic arm, the original product is transformed, it's changed, and then it goes to the next station, and the next station, and the next station. The, at the end of the conveyor belt, the product that first started is now remarkably changed. This is the analogy of methylation. And the robotic arms that are biotransforming, changing the thing, those are individual genes doing their jobs in a sequential and orchestrated manner. MTHFR is one of those robotic arms. It is, for example, in this analogy, the second of the five robotic arms. Well, common intelligence behooves that even if that robotic arm, the second one, is really, really important, the first and the other three after it, or the other, the other three after it, are also super important. So the superficiality with which we append all of this emphasis on the MTHFR gene without realizing what is the MTHFR gene? It is a gene that contributes to a biologic system. There are things that come upstream of it and things that come downstream of it. And it is the collective efficiency that is ultimately important because ultimately it's the whole system of the conveyor belt and the robotic arms that, which is what is methylation, that is important. So MTHFR, absolutely important, but it is the importance with which it 
the, the, the overall importance is the sum total of methylation. And this is the disservice that has been done by so many superficial you know, blogs or tests, oh, your MTHFR gene, your, the MTHFR gene is important, but it is only part of a system. Absolutely. I think that was beautifully explained. And I just, I mean, can you just go into a little bit about mm-hmm. what the dangers are of, mm-hmm. let's say somebody says, oh, you know what, I have this, you know, big snip in my MTHFR mm-hmm. gene, so I'm just going to start doing methylfolate, for example, every That's single right. day. I mean, I know just from learning about my own genes, that would be very detrimental for me. So it's like, I mean, just what what are some of the dangers yes, of without yes. understanding this information, just supplementing willy-nilly? So with a little bit more detail here, after having said this is a five-pronged, five-armed robotic conveyor belt system, what is really happening in methylation? What is really happening is methylation takes in two primary micronutrients, folate B9 and cobalamin B12. And these two micronutrients of the B family, together with the supportive Bs, mind you, are being used as vehicles to drive this robotic, this this conveyor belt system, okay? So so methylation is an anti-inflammatory process and it is using B9 folate and B12 cobalamin as integral parts of the system without getting into too much further details. Now, when we eat our green leafy vegetables, our, our broccolis and kales and whatever have, have you that are folate rich, the folate that comes into the body is dietary folate. It goes through, this is as, as I mentioned earlier, you need folate, but ultimately the folate is going to be biotransformed. Folate is going to go through a set of sequential steps, ultimately making something known as methylfolate, or more specifically, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, 5-MTHF, 5-methylfolate, 5-folate. These are all synonyms. It is the 5-methylfolate that your cells this is the activate, activated version of folate. And by the way, MTHFR is the gene which produces an enzyme, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. That enzyme is the enzyme that completes the last step to, to making the 5-methylfolate, which is not the last step in the overall big picture of methylation. But MTHFR completes the activation of folate into 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. Now, hearing this, if you have a SNP, a variation, in your MTHFR gene, which reduces its functionality, okay, fair enough, which means that the enzymatic potential of the MTHFR gene making the MTHFR enzyme, it's not doing its job as efficiently, what would that logically or seem to be logically means? It would mean that we're not making efficiently the activated 5-methylfolate. Fair enough. It seems logical thus far. And if you knew this, you would say, hey, I found out my MTHFR is not the most efficient version, therefore I think I'm not making 5-methyltetrahydrofolate efficiently, which is the activated version. Bada bing, off I go to Amazon 
off, off I go to my health food store. Let me, you know, let me go get my five methylfolate, and I start taking it. And of course, the nutraceutical companies, you know, pandering to more is better, are selling these goober high quantity uh, versions of methylated five methylfolate supplements. Seems like you've solved the problem until you realize. Hold on. Let's go back to that analogy of the conveyor belt with the robotic arms. Now, if the second robotic arm, the MTHFR gene, if that robotic arm is behaving wonky, it's slower, it's glitching, and if I start to speed up my conveyor belt, so I've got this conveyor belt that was supposed to be moving along in a synchronized speed such that each of the five robotic arms are doing their job sequentially and everything is fine and dandy such that my end product... Are we still there, guys? Yep, still here. There was a little bit of an echo coming in. Okay, oh, sorry. All right, so anyways, um, so we've got the conveyor belt working properly, the robotic arms ro- working properly. Now let's say that one of those robotic arms is suboptimal. And what do we go and do? We start speeding up the conveyor belt while the robotic arm is dysfunctional. You can quickly see this operating system, this, up, this part of the factory is going to turn into chaos. Right. This is what we do when you've got a suboptimal MTHFR and you do not know how the whole system is working by taking pre-methylated folate, especially at elevated levels, you could create the, the, the analogy, of course it's an analogy, the equivalent of speeding up the conveyor belt even though the robotic arms are not doing its job well. So now that thing that started at the the top of the conveyor belt and needed to be efficiently and timely biotransformed, step one, step two, step three, you can imagine that all hell is going to break out. That's what we're doing to cells. When you do not know the overall, not just the MTHFR, when you do not know the overall efficiency of a system, Do not for one moment think that taking high levels of some micronutrient is necessarily the solution. It is often making matters worse. And that was so beautifully put. And I think just to the um, more is better route, which I know all too well myself, it's just like was great to learn that, you know, less is more and also not to just look at one piece of the puzzle and think you're solving it. Absolutely. And, you know, really, you know, Abby, Nicole, this is something I try to advocate in my own home with, with, with doctors that I train or when I speak. Look, at the end of the day, the human body is a biologic organism. We were designed, our cells were designed to need energy sources, to need building blocks to repair themselves, to need things to help with antioxidation, detoxification, and so on and so forth. But these needs that we have, which we do have for optimal well-being, lie on a curve. Too little of things clearly are going to compromise the efficiency of a system, clearly. Then we get to an optimal point where where the ingredients, the the building blocks, all of the things needed for our city cells. I I look at cells, I, I, I teach cells as though they're perfectly designed, thriving metropolis and all of the components are there for those cells to work properly good but then 
Will we just start sending in more trucks with more gas, more bread trucks, more taxi cabs, more everything? does not mean that we're going to just keep improving the efficiency and the efficiency. And the, in fact, we, we reach a fulcrum point where we now go over the threshold and we send ourselves into sub-optimability. So more is not necessarily by any means better, number one. Number two, and we hinted at this earlier, just because certain micronutrients building blocks are needed for optimal cell function doesn't mean that they're needed 24-7. There's certain mm-hmm. micronutrients that the body needs in the AM, certain in the PM, certain things in circadian rhythms. So this culture that we have been indoctrinated with where we take handfuls of supplements in the morning and we go, bada-bing, body, I just gave you 300 times what you need. Go figure out how to use it. Right. <laughs> You know, that's not how the body was designed. We absolutely are going to find genetically certain things that the person, the individual, will need more of, less of, you know, versus someone else. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of individualized medicine, individualized genetics, individualized nutrition. But, you know, the one-size-fits-all, super-concentration, that's just, you know, we're quickly seeing that's not where medicine needs to be. Absolutely. I couldn't wow. agree more. It's awesome. And so Dr. Mansoor, a lot of our listeners are very interested in hormones and oh. hormone balancing. So I'd love to get into how do hormones tie into all of this and how can having this information about our genetics affect that? Absolutely. You know, uh, hormones by their very definition, which are molecules that are made in certain glands or places in the body, And then once made in discrete places of the body, they travel through the body, exerting remarkable effects on the body. So in other words, by its very definition, hormones are things that have the potential to dramatically affect cellular function. And specifically, when we speak of hormones here, I'm pretty sure, you know, we're speaking more of the sex steroidal hormones, i.e. those illustrious progesterones, androgens, think testosterone, and estrogens. So these are examples of hormones, and they radically, radically affect human function. Just just as a clarity, by the way, guys, these hormones, these, these androgens, testosterone, estrogens, they literally, how do they actually change the body? How do they impact the body? Hormones bind to our cells, having been produced, they enter into our cells, and then they go into the nuclei, the, the, the vaults of the cells that have the operating manuals, and they change the expression of genes. So hormones are impacting our cells at the most intimate of levels. So just FYI, they're super-duper important. Now, right, right. What is, what is more important, after we appreciate how important they are, it's the balance with which the human body produces these hormones. So we should know that both men and women are producing both estrogens and androgens. But it is the balance with which we produce these hormones. And this balance, how much hormones are you producing? How are you converting one to the other? Because how many ladies out there understand and appreciate, how many clinicians out there understand and appreciate that an menstruating woman Her estrogens, number one, let's get into some details here. The estrogens of a relatively healthy 
menstruating young women are not present at the same level throughout every single day of her cycle. It's a circadian rhythm. Really, our estrogens in the female healthy menstruating body are only elevated for about five days of the cycle. And where do we get estrogens from? From testosterone. In other words, every molecule in that menstruating woman, every estrogen molecule, assuming she's not on the pill, assuming she's not on any type of hormone replacement, first came from testosterone. So what we begin to see and it's so radically important. Optimal health, if you understand that hormones dramatically affects our body function, per what we said earlier, optimal hormonal health should be a key to every person's study and, 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 and you know, they're, they're striving for optimal health. They should strive to understand optimal hormonal health. And optimal hormonal health returns to, number one, how efficiently or not am I converting my progesterone into testosterone? How efficiently or not am I converting my testosterone into estrogens? How efficiently, and this is really important women, after I make my testosterone or after I take my testosterone, such as being on the pill, such as being on hormone replacement, how efficiently am I metabolizing and flushing out the hormones that I've taken. So each of these three steps, the making of it, the transformation from one thing to the other, and then ultimately the metabolism, neutralization, and excretion of your hormones, which are each step intimately controlled by your unique genetics, if you understood and appreciate how important hormones affect your body, you should appreciate how important it is for us to study your innate individual capacity for these three different steps. And that's one of the one of the things we do with our testing, Nicole Abbey. We take a deep and nuanced and intelligent look at the genetics of the individual when it comes to how efficient they're doing these processes. I mean I think that was one of the most blind, blind, mind-blowing things that I saw was just the little stoplights and how you explain that. And that kind of goes into the next question is, you know, like you were saying, there's a bunch of different patterns and there's different ways that these hormones convert into other hormones at faster or slower speeds. Yes. And so what are some of the different genetic patterns that you see and how do they affect women like so let's, estrogen let's, toxicity? Brilliant. So let's take an example. A, a young woman should know. When I say young woman here, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit old world British. So I, I call 60-year-olds young women because they're young. <laughs> they probably so, appreciate that. So what, what I mean by this is you know, a healthy female, a relatively healthy female. What you need to know is every time a molecule of estrogen shows up on the scene, a molecule of estradiol or a molecule of estrone. When either of these estrogens show up on the scene in your cells, having been produced or, or having been taken intentionally or unintentionally, that estrogen molecule, A, is going to exert an effect on your body by virtue of what we described. It's going to bind to your cell. It's going to absorb into your cell. It's going to go into your DNA, into your nucleus, and it's going to change the way genes are expression, expressing for the good or the bad of it. Now, ultimately, every molecule of estrogen has to be metabolized, neutralized, because if you just found out, you just heard, it does some pretty 
funky and amazing stuff to the cells. You don't want to be, trust me when I tell you, you don't want estrogens binding to your cells 24-7. You would not be who you are if that was happening. Right. So what So you want your estrogens produced, yes. You want it to have its period of activity and you want to shut it off for other periods. Now, how do you shut off, quote unquote, your estrogens? You metabolize it. Now, every woman will metabolize their estrogens into three different byproducts. We're going to take that estrogen molecule and we're going to make some of it. We're going to turn it into something called 2-hydroxyestrogen. We're going to turn it into something called 4-hydroxyestrogen. And we're going to turn it into something called 16-alpha-hydroxyestrogen. So think of it this way. Think of your estrogens being produced and filling up a barrel. So that's your estrogen reservoir that you are filling up during the course of your monthly cycle, for example in the four to five days that your estrogens are elevated. And at the bottom of this barrel, there are three faucets. Three faucets at the bottom of the barrel. I know that you guys are probably thinking of a beer keg. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So, so a, a keg being filled up, and there are three faucets at the bottom of it. And the three faucets empty the keg into three buckets. This is the way the body empties your estrogens into three different metabolites, 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, 16-alpha-hydroxy estrogen. Every woman produces all three, except the three different metabolites can have drastically different effects on the body. Even the metabolites affect the body, not just the original estrogen, such that the 4-hydroxy estrogen, for example has a much more inflammatory, has a much more negative impact on the body, the 4-hydroxy, as opposed to its nicer sister, the 2-hydroxy, is much safer, it's much less inflammatory. The body likes that metabolite much more than it likes the 4. Now, every woman produces all three. The question is, is she inclined, which returns to her genetics, is she inclined to producing more of the two than the four and 16? That's their best case scenario. Or is she inclined genetically? Is she innately, is her 4-hydroxy faucet, is she converting more of her estrogens into that inflammatory 4-hydroxy estrogen, which if that was being produced too much, will go on and wreak all sorts of havoc in the body? Why wouldn't a young woman not want to know this, especially when she finds out? Were she to know if she was producing too much of the inflammatory estrogen metabolite, there are tons of things she can do to correct the system. So this is what we refer to, Abby Nicole, as estrogen toxicity. One young woman mm -hmm. has the propensity of producing more of the 2-hydroxy, much less of the 4 and 16. She has what we would call the, ad the advantageous, the desirable estrogen metabolic pathway. Another young woman, she produces way more of the 4 and 16, which begins with her genetics. But by the way, lifestyle and nutrition choices can also augment or perturbate or exaggerate this. And so by knowing this at her innate genetic level, her and her clinician can much, much more intelligently, number one, change dietary lifestyle habits, nutrition, nutraceutic habits to improve the metabolic outcome. Number two, if you knew that you were innately already producing too much 
toxic, inflammatory estrogen metabolite, do you really think it's in your best interest to pour back into your body tons and tons of external estrogens? Right. No. Right? Not, not, <laughs> not in the least. And so this knowledge helps you to decide, make better choices of birth control, hormone replacement. Not at all. Hormone replacement is a godsend for so many men and women. But for some men and women, and we've known this all along, there are risks. There are things that we should be more cognizant of. And so knowing these genetic underlying mechanisms, the actual mechanism of things, we can make far better health choices, nutrition choices, nutraceutic choices, as the case might be. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So can a functional genomics test provide, for example, a woman more information about her potential risk of fertility challenges? It can, although fertility is going to go beyond even the type of genetic panels and, and pathways we look at, um, because they're multiferous things. And just, let, just so that we're clear, infertility is not always on the behest of the young woman. It many times comes from the guy side of things as well. Right. Like, so just making sure that yeah. the guys know, you know, you're sometimes the one that might be shooting blanks. <laughs> yeah. But, but when it comes to the ladies, absolutely these panels, because we know for, for there to be the optimal oppo the opportunity or the, the, the optimal opportunity for conception, what do we need? We need a healthy egg being released at a repeated or at a determinable time in the cycle. So in other words, here are the things we need. We need that ovum, that egg from the ovary to be healthy. We need it to be released at repeated and predictable times in the cycle. And when released, we need the fallopian tube lining to be healthy. We need so that the sperm can meet and, and say hello to its future mate. <laughs> then we need that zygote, that, that fertilized egg as it rolls down and gets to the uterine lining. We need that uterine lining to be willing and healthy and a, a properly nurturing environment, meaning physiologically that uterine endothelium needs to be healthy to accept the egg. And then as the implantation occurs, we need the right hormonal flux to trigger all of the physiologic changes concomitant with healthy early pregnancy and then of course later pregnancy. So all of these things come together as the need for fertility. Several of those things are impacted by genetic phenomena. So, of course, if a young woman, if she was overly androgenized, if she was not producing the requisite levels of estrogens to begin with, so as to trigger ovulation, and, and the whole hormonal cascade that triggers ovulation, in the first place, she's not releasing an egg to begin with. So that's definitely one of the areas. One of the areas that we look at, which is often not looked at, is even if she was doing that, even if she did produce efficient, you know, the eggs were healthy, her ovum were healthy, and they're being released at the proper time during ovulation, the microenvironment of the uterine lining in other words, is it an inflammatory lining? Is there too much oxidative stress? These are things that radically affect the very, very early stages of implantation 
and early development such that you have young women that are ovulating, they are conceiving, but they're not, they're, they're suffering from early spontaneous abortions, less because of their hormonal concerns, more because of the inflammatory environment of the uterine lining. And we also look at these things in our hormone panels. Wow. I mean, that's really amazing. I feel like that's definitely not something that's talked about. I haven't about. heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's radically important. And you know how many, when you look at a population of young women that are coming to the clinic reporting failure to conceive as the overall medical concern, that failure to conceive, clearly there will be a subpopulation that are not ovulating properly and then, of course, go through IVF, but um, or potentially anyways, but a subpopulation, a different subpopulation are ovulating just fine, conceiving just fine, but the concern lies when there is the point of implantation and the early microenvironment of that implantation. Wow, absolutely. This is amazing. So our last question is, and you've, you've kind of talked about some of these already, but just if there's anything else you want to mention, what are some of the common health concerns associated with a female's hormone panel? I would say the following, and they run the gambit from, I've learned, <sighs> men generally can't make too many comments about the human female form. <laughs> you learn not to stay quiet. In other words, the things that we, the things that we don't, you know, we women should learn that men really don't care too much about cellulite or stretch marks. They're really at least a decent-minded male. These are not <laughs> things that are usually, it's, it's just, that's the human body. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, but, but, but the point being, women tend to, you know, not being, just speaking plainly. I've had a lot of female clients, you know, Monsieur, Dr. Monsieur, why do I tend to have more cellulite? Why do I get, so at the first of it, by the way, these are phenomena that are related to, in part, and believe it or not, much more in part than I ever understood years ago, such that I can now predict the woman that will be at risk for cellulite production, you know, to have overtly obvious cellulite versus not. These are related to the first part of the hormone health, which is, are you an estro-dominant female, an andro-dominant female. In other words, in this cascade that we described, are you tilting in one direction, producing too much estrogens or producing too little estrogens and, and otherwise producing too much androgens, which of course will affect things like the onset of menses, menarche, acne, hair loss, body hair, cellulite, stretch marks, remarkably Hormone health impacts all of these things. Then beyond that, how the hormones are metabolized per the estrotoxicity. Now at the level of estrotoxicity, we enter into a few more concerning the risk of endometriosis, the risk of fibroids, the risk of, God forbid, even types of cancers. You see, because if a young woman, unbeknownst to herself, for her whole lifetime, she's excessively producing 4-hydroxy or 16-alpha-hydroxy estrogen, and those estrogen metabolites are accumulating and bioaccumulating in the breast tissue, for example, or in the cervical tissue. These metabolites are extremely inflammatory. And what did we say earlier? We said that chronic inflammation is the bedrock of so many naughty things that happen. And let me end with this. One of the things that makes 4-hydroxyestrogen so 
uh, so deleterious is 4-hydroxyestrogen. All women produce it. But for those women who, unbeknownst to them, they're making too much of it year, month over month, year after year, decade after decade, that 4-hydroxyestrogen produces itself, the actual 4-hydroxyestrogen then converts into a toxin known as quinones. And quinones are remarkable in their ability to damage your DNA. In other words, quinones can cause mutations. And once you get to the point where you are literally damaging your DNA, that's not a good place to be chronically. Right. So to, 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 to summarize, hormone health looks at from the relatively mundane body type, the propensity to, you know, where's the body putting on fat deposition and so on and so forth and all of these other things that we spoke of, up to and including core internal inflammatory status, risk factors. And notice there, we didn't say, well, that means you've got a 50% risk of such and such. No, what we're saying is functionally, you should know that something is happening at a level that you don't want it to happen decade after decade. So find out about it and then do something about it. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of the bottom line with this is that it's it's really empowering information. It doesn't have to be scary, scary and it doesn't have to be a diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Nicole, uh, Abby, Literally in the class, and I know I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to share with you um, a little caveat. It was a very emotive experience for me. It was quite telling. Uh, last year, mm, yes, early 2019, I was invited to the Breast Cancer Awareness <clears throat> Gala in Toronto. And so this is a massive gala. All of, uh, you know, all of the who's who and philanthropists are there and a lot of the doctors and many, many breast cancer survivors are at this gala. And I was invited as the keynote speaker to give a short little talk on this. And I'm wow. going to end this for your audience. You see, what I did for my talk was I asked the audience, I went to the podium and after some pleasantries, I said, how many of you in this audience have heard about the BRCA gene? And, you know, as you might imagine, most of the hands in the audience had gone up. And, of course, the BRCA gene, so after I asked them that question, all of the hands were up. Then I said, okay, how many of you that put your hands up want the BRCA gene, and all the hands went down. And so I said, well, hold on, guys. See, that's the first problem. Why did you all put your hands down? And so, of course, there were some murmurs, and one brave lady said, well, we don't want the BRCA gene. That causes cancer. Mm. And so then I had to say to the audience, I said, hold on, no, 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 no. Your BRCA gene is one of the most important genes in the body. What does the BRCA gene do? The BRCA gene is your spell check. Your BRCA gene does the job of constantly reading your genome, checking to see if any mutations have accumulated, which we all get hits because we live in the modern world. That we, well, we live in the world that we live in. Well, I could simply say we're living, therefore we're going to have mutations sooner or later. Your BRCA gene is your spell check. So I, I have to say, the thing that you don't want is you don't want your BRCA gene broken. So the mutation in the BRCA gene or the mutations in the BRCA gene is what causes the BRCA gene to stop doing its job. And when the BRCA gene stops doing its job efficiently, it is no longer spell checking your genome. So right. my first point here is how many of your doctors and patients 
understand this very important phenomena. Right, probably not a lot. Not a, and, and this is a disservice that we're doing, Abby Nicole, and this is the message that I want to send out there. In our Twitterverse, in the realm that we live in, that it seems that adults just want to read three-word sentences now, we have done a huge disservice to ourselves by not taking the time to understand things at least at a nominally more intelligent level. And why is this so important? Because if you just understood what I just said, and if you just understood that the BRCA gene is actually your spell check, and the BRCA gene is spell checking for mutations, and by the way, 4-hydroxyestrogen causes the very mutations... So then I asked the audience, how many of you have heard, after having asked them about the BRCA gene, I said, how many of you in this audience have heard of the CYP1B1 gene? And one young woman who happened to have had a test with me put her hand up. <laughs> and I said, look at the dichotomy here. Look at the, 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 the unfortunate turn of events. The CYP1B1 gene that none of you have heard of is the gene and the pathway responsible for producing the toxic estrogen or contributing to toxic estrogens, which would cause mutations, which would be the thing that your BRCA gene was supposed to have searched for. And you've only heard one side of the story. Mm, right. I mean, I'm sure that most of the people in that room are totally floored. <laughs> It was quite emotive, and, and it was yeah. quite, and, and, you know, and that's why I wanted to end on this, just to end by saying what we hope to do, and in the hands of people like yourselves, clinicians that are dedicated to elevating the discourse, you know, if you're going on a vacation, Abby, Nicole, any of your patients, what do they, they spend hours reviewing the hotel, reviewing where <laughs> they're going to stay, reviewing what sightseeing to do, they put their time and effort into it, but when it comes to health, we want a one-page gimmicky, tell me if I have blue eyes and if I'm half Neanderthal. <laughs> so true. Isn't that the truth? You, you know, I mean, it's, just, just, there's a discord here. There's a, there's, a, there's a missing something. And we need our audience. And if this message gets out to the right audience, it's just to say, come on, your health is worth more than this. Take the time, speak to your clinician, learn a bit more. Don't take superficiality as your guiding principle for something that is your most valuable commodity, health and well-being. And that's what I would end on. No, that's absolutely, and it's brilliant. And you guys are so generous. You're giving all of our listeners um, with um, a purchase of the female hormone panel or one, you get a 30-minute consultation that's free that goes along with that purchase mm -hmm. if you use our specific clinic cl code which we'll all have all of this in the show notes so you don't have to be taking notes but it's yt220 and i mean it's just it's so empowering like i said before i've run this test with myself and with a lot of my patients and i couldn't say better things about it Nicole, you're a gem. Abby, it's wonderful to make, make your e-acquaintance. If there's anything I can ever do for you, I hope this was beneficial to your audience. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Mansoor.